when we last saw David in 2 Samuel 16, he was in a trap. His own son Absalom has usurped the throne and David has had to run for his life. Like he did so many times with Saul, he has to run for his life. Uh, we see how bad things are for David, particularly in chapter 15, verse 30, it says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. It's a dark day for David. His own son, Absalom, wants him dead. And the worst news comes in verse 31, right after that. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is really bad. Chad explained this last week. Ahithophel's counsel is like Warren Buffett on investing. It can't be defeated. And as Chad said last week, Ahithophel, and I'm going to mess that up several times, he knows how David thinks. He knows where David would hide. He knows how the people would respond. And all David can do is just pray that God will intervene so that Ahithophel's counsel will just sound like foolishness in Absalom's ears. So the rightful king is in exile. David is in the trap. How is God going to set him free? Well, we begin in verse 1 in chapter 17. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So Ahithophel's counsel really is quite brilliant. He's going to take 12,000 men, that's 1,000 men per tribe of Israel, and capture David. And then instead of punishing everybody for their loyalty to David, he will spare everybody but David. Now what effect will that have? Well, the people will love Absalom because he treats them graciously and with favor. He spares them, gives them mercy, and they'll return home to Absalom like a bride returning to her husband. It's a bulletproof plan. Get the men, capture David, kill David, and spare the rest. It's checkmate in three moves. But the main thing is that Ahithophel needs to go tonight. He has to go immediately and catch David while he's vulnerable. The success of the plan rests on taking immediate action. So it's clear, if Absalom will do this, victory is pretty much assured. But kind of inexplicably, Absalom asks for Hushai's advice. Now who is Hushai? You might remember from last week that when David gets to the summit of the Mount of Olives, he meets Hushai the Archite with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Clearly, this man, Hushai, is suffering for David. He's lamenting for David. Because Hushai is David's loyal friend. And this loyalty leads Hushai into undertaking a very dangerous mission. Because now, when he comes before Absalom, he is pretending to be on Absalom's side. 
He is pretending to give him wise counsel. He is pretending to have abandoned David. And so this is kind of a, a dangerous position for Hushai to be in. So after Ahithophel gives his advice, Hushai is there to do good on David's behalf without anybody knowing that he's still on David's side. Verse 6. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war, and he will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. So Hushai gives advice opposite Ahithophel's. Most importantly in the difference of advice, whereas Ahithophel says, we must go tonight, Hushai says to wait, to prepare. It takes time to muster all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. It's going to take time. Well, why does he say that not to go right away, not to go tonight? He says, because David is a fierce warrior and an expert in war. Hushai plays upon David's reputation as an expert in war, as a warrior. Now, Hushai and we, the readers of the text, know what Absalom doesn't know. David is not a bear robbed of his cubs right now. He has been barefoot and weeping with his head covered, enduring thrown rocks and insults from Shimei. Absalom really has nothing to be afraid of, but he doesn't know that. And Hushai's advice wins the day. Verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Hushai gives false counsel to Absalom, and it works. Why? Because God's hand is in it. It's another instance of the seed of the woman battling the seed of the serpent, and God is on the side of the seed of the woman. But Hushai's advice is just one part of David escaping the trap. So Hushai relays the events to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, who are supposed to tell a female servant 
Who is to tell Jonathan and Ahimaaz, who are to tell David to get away now? That's quite a chain of communication to get to David. You have Hushai, Zadok, and Abiathar, the female servant, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, to David. And this is with Absalom's men all over the place. And actually, the plan doesn't work the way that it's drawn up. It blows up. Verse 17. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Himaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. So I want to point out that this unnamed woman was not part of the plan. But she helps at a crucial moment, and she hides Jonathan and Ahimaaz. Now, where have we seen this before in the Bible, where a woman hides two men who are in danger? Rahab hiding the spies in Jericho. And there were two spies, just as there are two men hidden by a woman here. And I think we're meant to be reminded of that story. Jericho was going to fall because God's hand was with Israel. And Absalom was going to fall because God's hand is with David. Verse 21. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water. For thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So in large part, thanks to this unnamed woman, David and his whole company crossed the Jordan and escaped. If David had followed Ahithophel's advice, it would have been a different outcome. But God was with David, and God was for David. And I think Ahithophel knew it. I think he knew that God was with David. Look at the next verse, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Now, I can't be sure, but I think Ahithophel didn't hang himself simply because his counsel wasn't followed, as if he was pouting because Absalom picked Hushai instead of him. I think he figured out that the only explanation for why Absalom didn't take his advice was that God must have been with David. God must have been favoring David on his side. How else do you explain Hushai showing up out of nowhere, another counselor turned against David, and Absalom taking his counsel instead? And if God was with David and against Absalom, well, then Ahithophel's own defeat was pretty much assured. And that's a checkmate. And so Ahithophel decides he does not want to stick around to see the end of the story. So I want to pause here and I want to look at David's improbable escape. So Ahithophel joins Absalom's side 
which appears to be game, set, match, game over for David. And David cries out in prayer to God. And after that, Hushai appears. David hadn't planned on Hushai meeting him in the wilderness. Absalom rejects Ahithophel's smart counsel in favor of Hushai's false counsel. When the plan fails, a woman hides Jonathan and Ahimaaz in a well and deceives the men looking for them. And David and everyone with him safely cross the Jordan. When I was thinking about this and just the improbable things that happened, I was reminded of a phrase from the Lord of the Rings. And that phrase is help unlooked for. Help unlooked for is help that you desperately need but are not expecting. You definitely need the help, but you have no idea if help is going to come, what form it's going to take. For instance, in The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf the wizard tends to disappear for stretches of time, and he goes on errands that are known only to him. But in times of distress, he returns unlooked for. He arrives just when he is needed. Those who are allied against Sauron and Mordor face terrible odds of success in their mission, and they know it. But they move ahead anyway because it's what they need to do and because there may be help unlooked for in their time of need. When David leaves Jerusalem, fleeing from Absalom, he has no plan. His plan is to get as far away from Absalom as he possibly can. He's just running for his life. And yet over and over again, there is help unlooked for in his time of need. There's Hushai, there's Ahithophel's council defeated, and there's the unnamed woman, all help unlooked for. We see it again shortly after David crosses the Jordan. So this is beginning in verse 27. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So David and his company come to Mahanaim, and this place figured earlier in the Bible in Jacob's story. Right after Jacob flees from his uncle Laban and comes out victorious, we're told in Genesis 32, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Jacob had escaped Laban and, right, and then right after that, he's about to meet up with his brother Esau, who the last Jacob knew wanted to kill him. So Jacob's out of the frying pan and into the fire. And between these two dangers, Jacob comes to Mahanaim and the angels of God meet him, I think, to strengthen him for his encounter with Esau. Well, fast forward to David. David's escaped from Absalom and he's crossed the Jordan, but he's not out of the woods yet because there's still a battle to fight. And his company needs refreshment. And at Mahanaim, the place Jacob called God's camp, they're greeted with all kinds of refreshment, from beds to vessels to food. This is help unlooked for. It was not planned. This was not something that David had sent out in advance. 
Who comes bearing these gifts to the king? Well, there's Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, the Ammonites. There's Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite. Let's take the first one, Shobai. The Ammonites are enemies. They're David's enemies. If you remember back to chapter 10, Nahash was an Ammonite who at one time had dealt kindly with David. But his son, Hanun, deals treacherously with David. And David defeats him in war. But here is another son of Nahash the Ammonite who deals kindly with David by bringing food and supplies. Further, Shobai is from Rabbah of the Ammonites. At the end of chapter 12, Joab defeated the Ammonites at Rabbah. So Shobai is part of the defeated enemy, and yet he comes bearing gifts to David. That is help unlooked for. Machir is the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now, Lodabar might ring a bell for you. That's where Mephibosheth is from. Lodabar means nowhere. Translated, it means nowhere, of no importance. So this Machir is from nowhere. He must be unimportant, but here he is refreshing the king and his people. And Barzillai is an old man. We'll find out a little later that he's 80 years old. And he lives in Gilead, which is across the Jordan. It's not in the promised land. And he could have said, yeah, your wars are your wars. I'm staying out of it. And yet he supplies the king as well. So an Ammonite, a man from nowhere, and an elderly friend from the other side of the Jordan, all of them put their skin in the game and provide for David and his people in their time of great need. It wasn't arranged ahead of time. This is help unlooked for. So David is now refreshed here at the end of chapter 17. When we turn to chapter 18 next week, David will have a battle to fight so that he can return to Jerusalem as the rightful king. So as we think about chapter 17 and how this text can speak to us, I want us to meditate a little bit further on help unlooked for. And I want to ask a question. And the question is, do you ever despair? Do you ever fall into despair? Do you ever experience a loss of hope? Whatever the area of your life, do you ever feel that all is lost and it's never going to get better? Despair is one of the enemy's most vicious weapons because it tricks us into believing that we know the future. And discouraged by knowing the future, we don't do anything in the present. Despair says, I've seen the end. I see how this is going to turn out, and it can only turn out badly. There is no hope, and so I give up. Despair locks us into a world where everything goes on the way that it's gone before. And whatever was bad will just remain bad. And nothing is going to change. And when we give in to that, it's like the world is just sealed off. And even God can't break into the world that we live in. You know, this chapter in 2 Samuel is not a chapter that most people think of when they think of the life of David. It's not a chapter that typically makes us think of hope. But from the time that David prays for God to turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness, good things start happening for David. And none of it was foreseeable in advance. He didn't know any of it was coming. David asked God to intervene, and he receives help unlooked for. And I find that very encouraging. But I understand if you can't relate to that. 
You might not see a connection between David's situation and your own, whatever situation causes you to despair. You might not see a connection. So I want to take us further. Why should we choose hope over despair, even in the darkest places? And the answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the source of all our hope. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the source of all our hope. When God raised Jesus from the dead, nobody was expecting it. After all, the scholar N.T. Wright says, dead people stay dead. Dead messiahs stay dead. Everybody knows that. Yes, we believe they will rise again on the last day, but not in the middle of history, not in the middle of the night, not in the middle in the muddle of our twisted and fragmented and puzzling and grieving lives. Dead people stay dead. Sometimes they get resuscitated like Lazarus, but even Lazarus eventually died again. It was nice for Mary and Martha for a time, but it was a band-aid on the real problem. But in the resurrection of Jesus, God blew the doors off what we thought we knew about reality. Jesus wasn't just resuscitated, coming back to life temporarily. He has never died since, and he never will. Jesus is alive forever. And Jesus is the first fruits. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's the first of many to be raised and never die again. And we will be among those. Think of Jesus like a powerful magnet. And the Father is drawing everything into his resurrected life. As, as Chad talked about in the sermons on Romans 8 back in December, God is putting the world right. And part of that involves our suffering with Jesus, our groaning in the places where the world is not right. And as Paul said in Romans 8, we do this with hope. We don't give in to despair as we groan. We don't say there's nothing that can be done. We go forward in hope because God raised Jesus from the dead. And as we go in hope, we watch for help unlooked for. The world is not as predictable as we think. At our leaders retreat two weeks ago, we had an afternoon meeting of just the TCF leaders and we discussed some of the different challenges that were going on in the church. But at some point, Shannon shared a list of the answered prayers from this past year. And it was amazing. People being saved, baptisms, marriages, babies, new families coming into the church, new men growing as leaders. The list just went on and on. I think we all just kind of sat back and were like, we hadn't really thought of that. And many of those things, many of those answered prayers came at the end of a lot of prayer. And a lot of times where people were tempted to despair. And a lot of it came through unexpected circumstances. So I think this should greatly encourage us to be a people of hope. To keep praying to remember that we live in a world that's stamped by Jesus' resurrection and that we are resurrection people and to wait with patience for help on look for. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.